Welcome to Cerebronas. This is Cynthia, and this is the second in our Chiquita Sode series. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by the elite institutions and democratize knowledge. On this Chiquita Sode, we interviewed Professor Margaret Montoya and Christine Zuni Cruz, who we spoke about a little bit during the last episode. And in this episode, we discussed the overlap and important distinctions between the Latinx and the indigenous communities, the issue of overclaiming and underclaiming indigenous roots, and the struggles of being a Latina in legal academia. Uh, sadly, Yvette couldn't join me for this short intro portion since I'm in LA visiting my family, but we were together for the interview. So without further ado, Enjoy the brilliance of Professor Montoya and Professor Zuni Cruz. Hi, everyone. We're here today with Professor Zuni Cruz and Professor Montoya, who are going to be talking to us about indigenous and Latinx identity and communities. But before we go into that, Professor Zuni Cruz and Professor Montoya, could you uh, give a short introduction to yourselves for our audience? Hi, I'm Christine Zuni Cruz. I am a professor at the University of New Mexico School of Law. Um, I served at the university um, for about 25 years now. I'm currently the Associate Dean for Institutional Climate and Equity. Hola, ¿qué tal? ¿Cómo están? Es un placer para mí estar aquí con ustedes. I'm Margaret Montoya. I'm now retired, um, but I'm a professor of law, and I've been here at the University of New Mexico for almost 30 years. Um, I'm, a, I'm an activist. Uh, I'm an activist scholar. Um, I see myself as being a voice for racial justice. Um, I'm a mom and a grandmother. Um, and um, I just want to applaud uh, Cynthia and Yvette for creating this podcast. Um, and I love the idea that they are doing it in order to make their voices louder and to have greater reach. Um, that's felicito. Thank you so, Thank you so much. much, Professor. That's really sweet. Yeah. So, you know, we're doing this these interviews as part of the La Alianza's conference at Harvard Law this, uh, that they're having this year. And so they, when we interviewed them last for the last episode and spoke to them, they mentioned uh, the work that y'all have done with them in framing them and having continuity with them. So could you just get into, you know, what the conference is for y'all, how you've been involved, and... Yeah, just your thoughts on, on the conference in general. So this is the third year that I'm going to be involved with um, La Alianza doing a policy conference. So this is their third annual policy conference. Um, the first conference, I was invited to do a teaching demonstration on critical race theory. And I suggested to them that, in fact, we have a co-teacher. And so they invited Juan Perea who did a pretty standard stand-up lecture, uh, stand-up teaching, we call it. Um, and he, he talked about the racial roots of the US Constitution. I did a, I, I transformed a, 
part of the room into a seminar, um, and I set the table as I talk about. Uh, I put a sarape on the on the desktop, um, and then I had the students do some some elevator stories with the prompt race matters as a way of really trying to get the students to think about um, what are we talking about when we're talking about race neutrality, race consciousness, and color blindness. Mm -hmm. And then used um, Fisher versus Texas II as the way of talking about that. And, right? and, and just for folks, Fisher versus Texas II is the one um, with the student in the University of Texas who uh, was claiming that the affirmative action was uh, did, went beyond the law and was illegal because of the way she, because she didn't get a spot. Um, so just right. that, that, she yeah. been, that she had been discriminated against as a white woman. Yes. Because of the complicated admissions program that Texas has, right? Um, and this is the this is the 2016 case because the Supreme Court has now visited this um, uh, program at Texas twice. And so that was the that was the first year. The second year, the students decided that they wanted to take that, you know, the way that I had done the interactive piece um, and really see if we could do a larger piece like that. So we did a three-hour workshop, and it was called Speaking Up in Different Spaces. Hmm. And we were talking both about that, in fact, we speak up in many different venues, mm -hmm. but that we face the politics of indifference. Um, and so about 10 or 12 students trained in order to be facilitators for the small group conversations that we had. Um, and so that set the stage for this year where the conference is, is going to be set up into dialogue circles in place of the more usual panels that are used in most academic conferences. And that really draws on the work of Professor Zuni Cruz. That's really so, amazing. Um, I really also like the imagery that you used of setting the table um, by putting a serape on the table and also by formatting the room in ways that are inclusive of more participants. Because I know that for me, one of the things that really helped intimidate me as a 1L was this, uh, the physical layout of the classroom and the way in which the professor was at the head of the room and students were all kind of in rows um, behind the professor, just very much sending the message that knowledge goes one way and not both ways. Well, and that's a space that really disciplines the body. Yeah. Because the body is made to face in one direction. Typically, the tables and the seats cannot be moved, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, yeah. There's, and the well of the class, where the desk and the podium and the mic are, are really a, a place of power yeah. which train us for the courtroom, right? Oh, yeah. Right? Or the legislative chamber or boardrooms, right, where there's this policing of the body. Yes. Usually male bodies. Yes. But anyway, we interrupted Professor Zuni Cruz where she was going to talk about her work. Um, no, I was just going to comment on how I um, joined Professor Montoya in this conference at Harvard this year. So we um, were in Mexico City this summer, and um, we had a dialogue circle um, with the Law Society Conference. Um, 
it was a mid-law conversation um, about serving um, Latinx and Indigenous communities. Um, we had an Indigenous lawyer from Peru and myself and um, Professor Montoya and uh, Dr. Brenda Pereira from UNM. And um, so it was like the first time that I had with Margaret engaged in a dialogue circle. But the dialogue circle is really um, an influence from Canada. I spent a year at the University of Saskatchewan um, College of Law in Saskatoon um, and uh, was tasked with putting together a conference. And I talked with uh, the Native uh, law center director, um, and he said, uh, well, you know, why don't you have a dialogue circle? Why don't you do this in a talking circle, actually, is what he said. Um, and so that was my uh, first introduction to the use of a circle. Dialogue circle is what I've come to, to call it in the academic space. Um, and I was up in Canada to talk, to engage with Canadian Indigenous scholars about um, the law of Indigenous peoples, and so it, it really just made so much sense to engage with those scholars and engage the, the people from the U.S. that I was working with um, in this in a dialogue, in a circle um, about. Indigenous legal tradition. And so that was my first um, um, introduction or use of the circle in academic space. And it was, it, it went so well that I then, um, when I returned to New Mexico, to UNM, began incorporating it as often and as frequently as I could in the work that I was doing and to begin thinking about it in terms of um, interacting with the community, um, uh, interacting um, with others across difficult issues where, you know, you're really um, looking more for a dialogue and an understanding and the ability for people to hear one another. So the, the idea of um, introducing the, the dialogue circles or, or this work that I'm doing um, to the conference at Harvard really came through my relationship with Professor Montoya and um, her exposure to the work when we were down at the Law Society conference. Well, and it grows out of um, the fact that this year's conference at Harvard is going to be between, sponsored by both La Alianza, the Latinx organization, and NALSA, um, the, the uh, indigenous students. And so when I found out that, in fact, this, it was going to be the this conversation between the two communities, it seemed obvious to me that um, I wanted to bring uh, Professor Zuni Cruz into the conversation. That, that's great, and we're looking forward to delving more into dialogue circles and just kind of structuring for the next episode, I, that's, and that's a, this is a great setup for it, but just kind of pivoting away from that into more of, you know, the background that folks should have when they come to the table in terms of Latinx and indigenous communities and identities, like in the overlap in our shared histories, but also the conflicts and, and the, you know, all the complications. Because I think right now we're living in a moment where more and more Latinx 
community members are are realizing how we've we've privileged the Spanish heritage, uh, and because of the like white supremacy and the way that we uphold it ourselves within our community, and so I see people turning more to their indigenous roots, but I don't think we know the full history of it and the full complications that come from that. So if you if you could just kind of speak from your research and the years of study, like how you sum up the relationship or you know, how you think about the relationship between Latinx and indigenous communities, which includes like the overlap and the distinctions, that would, I think that would be just really helpful information for us to know so that we can acknowledge, or not even acknowledge, but chart a way like, forward. Like how do we go about recognizing this history and not privileging one or the other? and being respectful of differences. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, that this relationship between um, indigenous peoples and Latinx communities um, is one that um, is first, you know, clearly there's, there's overlap um, in our histories. Um, there's, um, you know, intertwining definitely, definitely in terms of um, um, our past, our, 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 our bodies, if you will. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, we're talking about two separate um, peoples in mm -hmm. terms of, um, of identity, um, even if they are related. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, um, that's the, the respect that, um, that is important to, to acknowledge. Um, and as well as um, just the incredible diversity um, that exists um, amongst indigenous people. I mean, if we're talking about the United States, we're talking about um, 500 plus different indigenous um, peoples. Um, and uh, so, you know, we, we have to factor that in even as we talk very broadly, um, that diversity. But the same is true also for Latinx. I mean, the diversity in that in that category is also quite huge. And so, you know, when we're talking about this relationship between indigenous peoples and the Latinx community, you know, we, we have to be mindful of the great amount of diversity within, within each of the groups and the different, you know, histories that, that each is going to have with indigenous peoples. Um, over time, um, time, you know, time passed, and then um, even currently now in, into the present. Um, I would say that, you know, it's really a relationship that's complex, um, certainly complicated, um, and, and extremely diverse. Uh, so, so let me... Go ahead, Professor Montoya. Let me, um, first of all, um, make the point that I come into critical race theory and more recently lab crit through Chicano studies. Hmm. So when I was at San Diego State, um, of course this was in the, the late 60s, early 70s when Chicano studies was just being formalized. Right. Um, there were as yet no, no scholars in Chicano studies. There were very few books in Chicano studies. Uh, but one of the things that we were trying to do was actually acknowledge that we were uh, the mixture of that arises out of the colonial encounter, right? That to whatever extent we were Spanish, we were 
even more indigenous, right? right? And that we were indigenous in terms of our appearance, that we didn't look European. And, I, and now I'm saying, I'm talking in just in generality. I don't mean to essentialize, right? Um, but that uh, at the same time that there was a conversation about black pride and, and black is beautiful, that conversation was happening in Chicano studies, which then I think becomes true for other people who join the conversation as Latinos, as we are positioned, um, you know, really across the Americas, not just in, in the Southwest. And so I think that that's, I just want to sort of put a pin in that conversation in terms of our uh, recent history. In terms of our longer history, particularly here in New Mexico, I think that yesterday's New York Times had a story about the Genizaros, the enslaved Indians, the Indians that were enslaved by Spaniards, Mexicans, and Mestizos. And this is a history that goes back to the late 1500s, and that enslavement continues until the late 1800s. So we're talking about a 300-year period, wow. and it is estimated that at the end of the 17th century, one-third of all of the people in New Mexico, and that's really where the population clustered in the southwest, right? There were, there were smaller population clusters, but the main cluster was in New Mexico, that one-third of all of those people were genizaros or the children of genizaros. So we're talking about a very significant influence. Now, if we come forward, that history gets muted. Certainly during statehood, during the, the, the process that takes place in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, because of the conflict between mestizos and whites around statehood and around the prominence of Spanish. Statehood does not happen. It happens more easily in Arizona because Arizona is whiter. The debates in New Mexico are both around the number of, of mestizos, of, of Nuevo Mexicanos here, and the uh, widespread use of Spanish. And so during that era begins this suppression of our indigenous roots in which there is a greater identification with being Spanish, certainly in northern New Mexico, less in around the border, but in northern New Mexico. Now, this is partly a result of the bureaucracy, which is now counting us as either Spanish-speaking or Spanish-surname people. Mm -hmm. So there is not only this identification with Europe and the conquistadores, right, Mm -hmm. But there is this, these categories that get created by the government with an emphasis on white superiority. That history is so interesting. I, I, I read the article, and, and we'll post it on our website for folks so that they can read it also. But I found that so interesting because one of the characters, well, not characters, one of the individuals the story focuses on, he mentions that, you know, in his, in his ancestry are both Geniseros and slave owners. So 
so there's that there's that both and that I think to me is where a lot of the tension comes from when I think about Latinx and indigenous communities and where they overlap where in I feel like in modern days the people who are thinking about it now we have both but and but there's there's so I don't I don't know how to for me I don't know how to reconcile the violence of my one of my set of my ancestors against another set of my ancestors and what responsibility that means for me. I think that's further complicated by gender because I think that if you go back and you trace the relationships between mestizas and the conquerors, right? The the sequential conquerors, these are relationships both that are relationships of violence and relationships of choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that so that so that this is a very complicated. I mean, I think in our own families, this is very complicated in terms of where was their agency on the part of women mm-hmm. in the, in that they were choosing these partners, right? Either partners that were racialized like they were or partners that were racialized white or 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 conquerors or conquistadores or whatever the language was, right? Yeah, and I think this goes to questions of uh, overclaiming and underclaiming because in my mind, I think that if your ancestors, so if, you know, if, let's say hypothetically, I were to have indigenous ancestors who for economic reasons felt forced into uh, assimilating into the characteristics that are associated with uh, being mestizo or mestiza, like learning Spanish or adopting the Catholic religion, uh, then to what extent um, should I identify with indigeneity or not, given that there's all these messy questions about agency and choice. And really, those are questions that probably won't ever be able to be answered in any kind of specific, accurate way. I think that, you know, that, that there's an aspect there of, um, of recognition. I mean, in the sense that you recognize that there's a relationship um, as opposed to deny that there is or was ever a relationship. But I think a part of the complexity um, arises from the fact that, that there, are, there are shared histories and, and shared ancestors, certainly for, um, for mestizos. But um, indigenous peoples um, um, are on a, on a clear path or, you know, a, a, a path um, that is one that they seek in order to maintain a a separate identity and a separate culture and a separate world view, mm-hmm. which includes you know this connection to land, um, and it mm-hmm. seems it seems fairly fairly clear, um, and I and I think that um, I think I started out by saying that there was a need for recognition of the fact that there is this shared history and this shared ancestry ancestry and and you know maybe certainly at least to oppose that of a denial that there is there is a shared history, but also the need to understand that there is this distinct distinctness, this this, 
distinction between a, a clear indigenous um, identity. Mm-hmm. I think that that question has had constitutional salience in many of the Latin American countries that have brought forward the question whether they were going to amend their constitutions in order to recognize the personhood of indigenous persons. That becomes a particularly troubling decision when it is tied to resources. So that if the decision is, yes, let's recognize indigenous people for purposes of the Constitution, right? That question has been resolved fairly easily in a number of Latin American countries. It's when it's followed by, well, do they get land? And do they get to claim the resources above and and below the surface, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Other kinds of, whether mining rights or um, other kinds of extractive resources, right? Then suddenly that becomes a much more difficult conversation. And in fact, it's been stopped in Mexico, for example, that, that question of how Mexico is going to to go forward. This mm-hmm. isn't even talking about the theft that has happened over millennia, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And I think that that has, that, that that question then poses some difficulties for us as Latinx people here. Because I think that there have been Latinx people who claim indigeneity and sometimes seek to get jobs because of that. Sometimes they seek other kinds of benefits from claiming their their indigeneity. Mm-hmm. And we know that here in New Mexico, there have been some situations where people have been outed as Latinos or Latinas, because this, this happens in the, you know, the last decade or two, right? It's fairly recent history. And as having had very weak claims to any connection to uh, indigenous communities, right? So they did not know the culture, they did not know the language, and they were not connected to communities which are some characteristics of whether you are indigenous or not, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that kind of reminds me that while, while the Latinx community, some of it, is, is grappling with like, this recognition of the privileging of Spanish heritage and the role of um, you know, white supremacy in Latin America, while that's happening and you know, efforts are going towards that, there's also need for attention to like, current issues impacting the indigenous community and like continuing erasure of indigenous communities. So like I see that struggle now where we're focusing on our own ancestry and I think it's a it's a necessary process of I think it's a it's a, a block to undo in the undoing of white supremacy, but at the same time we need to make sure we're bringing indigenous voices into the room where we're not closing the door the way that the door has been closed on Latinx communities. And so I think, you know, we can see a lot of modern day examples, I think, still of the indigenous communities 
being erased, and I think your discussion of resources gets right at the heart of that, of where are resources, have we given back land, what have we done, you know, as repar reparations, and, and I think the answer to that is always very minimal. I think I really appreciate that, um, Professor Monta, you just mentioned that a really important aspect of indigenous identity is whether or not you actually have any ties to community and the extent to which you're connected to the culture too. Um, because I think even though it felt like for a time a lot of people had recognized that race is a social construct, with things like 23andMe and other types of companies that are trying to make race into a biological concept again, I just feel like we've lost that idea, and um, I think that I totally agree with you that I think that's a huge issue of, you know, thinking about indigeneity as like related to a blood quantum, um, and then as a result, people feeling free to check a box and obtain resources that are meant for people who are actually in community and who are actually connected to their indigenous culture and history. Why these these words that um, or these terms that um, Professor Montoya and I have used as we've discussed this relationship over years? Because actually, this is a discussion that we've had, I'd say, over 15 years, maybe. Wow. Um, and the terms being overclaiming and underclaiming in in respect to this relationship between Latinx and Indigenous people. Um, is a really they're 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 really useful terms um, mm -hmm. because you can see both that, that both occur um, yeah. in respect yeah. to um, the overclaiming um, and the underclaiming of indigenous identity in that relationship and um, there's a lot there I mean you know it's there 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 are these terms but underneath that there's a lot. Um, be discussed about you know what that is and how it plays out and you know just what is the right right balance and you know of course it depends on on individuals and um, their relationship to to um, indigenous people. Mm -hmm. I think one of the places where we in the academy and we. Um, who see ourselves as activist scholars um, can really make a difference is asking whether Native voices are at the table. Because I have been at numerous conferences of color where there is either no voice, indigenous voice or a very, very small representation from indigenous people. And I just think Having that be a question that we ask and that we that we make room and that we that we solicit that participation should just be you know second nature to us. Yeah. That should not be something that you know that we need to learn and relearn because we don't do it right. And right now in New Mexico there is a so the the congresswoman uh, who is Latina. Is, has decided not to run again for Congress because she's going to run for governor, which opened up that seat. And there is now a JD, uh, a Native woman, who is running. This is the first time that we have a bio 
of electing a Native woman to Congress. And I just think that this is the time when, as Latinx people, we need to step forward. Her name is, is Deborah Halland, uh, H-A-L-A-N-D. Mm-hmm. She's both of our students. Oh, wow. Uh, yes. And I'm extremely proud that she is a viable candidate. Um, and I think that it's incumbent upon us to support her. Yeah. And that's fascinating. And we'll, we'll post more links um, about her on our website as well so folks can, like, uh, see and, and hear about the campaign. But I, you started talking about a- academia and the role of activist scholars. So I did, because we're coming up to the end of our interview, I did want to turn a little bit to hear about your experiences in academia because there's just not a lot of space for non-white identities or any of the complexities that we've just we've been discussing. So, you know, how, how do you navigate it? How, how has it been? What have been your experiences in academia? That, that's a, it's a really, um, the question that you ask is, is a, um, it's an important question because I think that we learn through experience. For me, I, I think that my experience has been, it's not been a cakewalk. Um, <laughs> that's, that's for sure. I've written a bit, um, but not published about um, my journey. I call it my journey narrative in terms of um, my experience in the legal academy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what, what? What strikes me is that I I often reflect on you know these things that I've heard, um, and you know a couple of things come to mind. Like, and, and actually, I use these to divide my my narratives, my my journey. Recently, I heard the expression or that the question was posed to me, "Why you?" Um, and then you know I've heard questions like. Um, or about myself, you know, that, that I'm not user-friendly. Um, and these are from, you know, from within the academy. So that, so that mm-hmm. just gives you kind of a glimpse of, um, of the, uh, the way I think that, that there's a perception or the way that, you know, um, you have to kind of, you're in, and then once you're in, you've got to then continually make your way continually show that you belong in a space that I think was set up for, that assumes that you don't belong. So it's been a a struggle, (laughs) I guess is one way to say it. So I had the good fortune to have Christine Zuni Cruz as my colleague. This is something that's hard for me to talk because you're going to hear the emotion in my voice. Um, I see myself as someone who uh, went to Harvard Law School, and Harvard opens doors for, for those of us who were outsiders to the Harvard experience. And that once we walk through those doors, we have to use that Harvard platform in order to dismantle the power and privilege around us. Mm-hmm. And that when we set out to do that, we are seen as traitors because we are betraying the privilege that got us here. We are the Trojan horse, right? <laughs> um, right, we come in and hopefully, you know, we bring all of these other people along with us, right? Because I move as a community, right? My family, like 
all of these people that I bring along, and we have a short shelf life. And I, and I think that I used that life here at the law school, which was about, I don't know, maybe 12 years, to try and gain access and success for both students and faculty here. And then I had to leave. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I was able to move over to the medical school. And at the medical school, I was able to bring this toolbox of critical race theory, of critical race praxis, right, lacrit praxis, to do in medicine what I had tried to do in law, which is to create some spaces where people of color can show that we have talents and competencies and that we, in fact, make the institution smarter and that we can demonstrate that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that that comes at a very high cost. Yeah. Um, And um, I think that I have been denied leadership here at UNM. Mm -hmm. I was never put on any major committee in the law school. Wow. Um, And I mean any major committee, not even as a member. Wow. Uh, The only time that I served on hiring was the year that we did no hiring. Uh, Ah, that's not a coincidence. Right. I mean, and so, so I could go through and say, you know, why wasn't I groomed for deanships? Why wasn't I groomed for for more, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've been in these sort of, so I've been um, special advisor to the president. I've been special advisor to the chancellor in health sciences. So I'm at the table, but I don't have the portfolio that the other people have, right? Uh, either managing people or controlling resources. Not that I wanted, <laughs> necessarily wanted, but that I think that, I think that some of us have been sidelined in that way. On the other hand, I've had the incredible privilege of working in critical race theory and being one of the founding members of LATCRIT, right? Mm -hmm. And that for now, we're in our 22nd year of trying to create a different discourse, a hopefully more inclusive and intersectional discourse. And this last part of my academic career, I've really committed it to my family Mm. to really take this discourse, to take this that I have, make sure that uh, my daughters are able to have this information, my nieces and nephews participate in this, but also my community, right, that I'm extremely committed to trying to find ways, and that's why I'm so thankful that you have created this podcast, because this is the kind of example of, you know, uh, magnifying our voices and extending our reach. Well, thank you for the kind words. Um, and thank you for sharing your story. Um, I can only imagine how difficult it's been to navigate uh, the law school as, as an academic. One of the things that you said reminded me of something that I heard Sri Moraga say about how she went about navigating Stanford. And she said that she was in the institution, but that as soon as there was any indication that she wasn't going to be able to live out her values, then she always prepared herself to be able to leave and to not to leave and not think twice about it. I forget her exact words, um, but I just wanted to say that I really admire the ways in which you've stuck true to your values and um, 
navigated these these difficult career dynamics, but still remained, you know, connected to your integrity and your values. That's not at all something that all academics do. Um, and so I just wanted to say thank you. Um, you're such an inspiration. Well, I think that uh, this work is collective, right? And, and again, you know, I had the benefit of having Professor Zuni Cruz and um, really the work that we have done together trying to keep our footing by uh, by falling on one another, I guess. <laughs> right. I also, I just want to add, I love the language of the Trojan horse because there's been times, I think even in conversations with Yvette where I'll describe that, that same like kind of idea where I'm just like, I... Like, I have no idea why I got admitted. Like, I'm not here to be oh so grateful. I'm not here to, like, learn and, like, reinforce everything you taught me. Like, I'm here to see what you've been teaching so that I know how to take it apart because, like, this cannot continue. And so it's, like, that Trojan horse just perfectly captures how I've always felt. Like, I don't know why y'all are admitting me, but I'm going to take opportunity of all these resources and redistribute them. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing so much about this. We're super excited to have this conversation and for the, the follow-up as well on dialogue circles and kind of thinking about how we structure things. But is there anything else you'd like to add to this to this episode and that you'd like to share? So I'll just um, go back where I started. Comencé en español y comencé en español con un propósito. So that when I begin in Spanish, if, um, if this were the classroom or if I were giving a talk, I'd be wearing a wee bead and I would have a sarape because what Professor Zuni Cruz and I have talked about is bending the space, mm -hmm. that we do our work in white space and that that space uh, inhibits our work. Mm -hmm. And so we need to do things, first of all, to name it, to see it, and then to bend it, to reconstruct it in small ways, but in ways that allow us to feel more a part of the space, and to also make that space different from what it was before we were there. Mm. To acknowledge that our, our bodies bend the space, mm. our voices bend the space, right? Our histories and narratives, but that there are other ways that we can bring uh, both visual and, and auditory markers into that space. Yeah, thank you so much. I feel rejuvenated. Yeah, I um, I gave a, a speech at my college graduation, and I started off in Spanish, the speech, and, like, there was a collective, like, <gasps> when I started speaking in Spanish, because everybody was shocked, like, and they, like, I, I heard some people say, like, is this gonna, whole thing going to be in Spanish? And so, uh, I, yeah, I, I find that, you know, speaking in Spanish and not offering a translation can be a really powerful tool to kind of just, like, disrupt whatever space you're currently in. So I, I really appreciate the use of Spanish. <laughs> so we hope everybody enjoyed and tune in in a couple days for part two. Bye. Bye.